We'll look at verses 9 through 11. Paul's prayer to the Philippians. He writes, And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we want to just set our minds again upon you, especially with the busyness of the season and so many good things that we've been able to talk about and delight in. Even so, Lord, we know even these great things and even the relationships we have with one another can serve even as a distraction from you. And we want everything to be an overflow of our delight in you and we need help. So I pray that you'd encourage us, draw our minds back to your words, strengthen us and instruct us so that even we would be impacted by the example of Paul here in his prayer for the Philippians. Give me clarity so that what I say is clear and it's helpful. It it actually truly explains the text and and brings it to life in in such a way that we would immediately apply it. And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I wanted to take a pause uh, on the book of Revelation um, in order to address the issue of prayer once again. Since that is the primary reason why we gather on Wednesday nights is because we want to pray as a church. And it's been pointed out by many faithful Christians in church history that one of the best means of helping us in our prayer lives is just to look at the examples of biblical prayers, especially the prayers of Paul or of David in the book of Psalms. And prayer really is one of the most fundamental aspects of the Christian life. I mean, it's one of the things that people immediately have a desire to do or an impulse to do. And I say that because of Galatians 4, 6. Uh, Paul says, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. One of the evidences that a person's a believer is they have this compulsion to cry out for God's help. I think one of the fundamental things a Christian recognizes is they need God's help. It's one of the Evidences of being a Christian. And that's why many Christians in the past have likened prayer to the cry of a baby. Just like a baby, as it's born into the world, cries because it needs food, it needs milk. And its cry is a sign of life, as well as a sign of need. And prayer is the same way. It shows that we really have spiritual life and we recognize our need. And really, the more we recognize our need, the more we will pray. And that's, I think, good for us to keep in mind, too, because... Especially as Americans, uh, it's drilled into us to be uh, uh, responsible for ourselves, which is a good thing. And yet we can be so self-oriented in that that we fail to recognize that spiritually we're totally dependent upon God. And so we need to pray. We need to recognize we need God's help. And of course, that's why we've gathered. So I'm preaching to the choir a little bit. And that's really why Paul is praying here, because he sees massive needs in the Philippian church. The Philippian church is a fairly healthy church, but he recognizes that unless he prays for them, he has no reason to believe that his ministry to them will be faithful at all. 
that it would, it would experience long-lasting fruit. So just like a, a gardener who fails to water his garden isn't going to see much fruit after a while. Likewise, Paul knows if he's not praying for the Lord to water his spiritual garden, the garden's going to dry up and, and produce no fruit at all. So he knows that no amount of duty and discipline on his own can produce spiritual fruit. And, because of, and we know this. Only God can produce growth, spiritual growth. So he knows that God works through prayer. It's one of the means of grace. Our goal, again, as a church is we want to see people grow spiritually, grow in Christ's likeness. Well, how does that happen? It's not through fancy lights and big, bigger buildings. Um, it's through the Word of God, rightly understood, rightly underplied, rightly applied, prayer, and then our ministry to one another. It's rather simple. And Paul knows that too. So especially when he's not with them, he's praying for them, and he shows us what he specifically prays for here. Now, the, the fact that God works primarily through prayer is evident throughout church history. In fact, I pointed out before that Many of the church, I think all the church revivals that I've studied started in response to congregational prayer meetings, just like we're doing tonight, or at least by individual devotion to prayer, but often through congregational prayer meetings. Uh, the first great revival in Christian history occurred after a 10-day prayer meeting. Um, we read in Acts 1.14, the disciples continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. That was their daily practice, and it was shortly after there, God poured out his spirit, and the church came alive. St. Patrick was known to pray for hours a day, and God used him more or less individually to convert the whole island from radical paganism. I mean, the kind of stuff you see in these dark medieval horror films, that was... <laughs> that was Patrick's, the people Patrick was ministering to, they were pirates, medieval pirates. So think Vikings, scary individuals. And yet, almost the whole island came to Christ through his ministry. The reformers Martin Luther and John Calvin were, were both men that spent hours daily in prayer. We, th we know them as theologians, but, they, they, but their theology didn't come from just head knowledge. They, it, it was spirit-led as God anointed their prayers as they pled for his assistance. Like we have to recognize theology comes from God, at least theology rightly done. It's not just simply through reading scripture, because many people can just read a Bible. Right? The Bible is there for us to read, but what makes, it, what makes the difference from the, those great minds and just those who are really smart? Well, it's, it's, typically, it's those who prayed over their scriptures, over what they're studying. The great revival under Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century began with his famous call to prayer. And, and the work of God amongst the Native Americans with David Brainerd was certainly in response to his daily devotion to prayer. He would spend all night, just like Christ would, praying for these Native Americans. And for years he saw no response at all, just hardness. A very difficult people group to reach. And then all of a sudden, you know... Uh, 100, 200 people came to know the Lord within a very short period of time. Spurgeon said unequivocally that the reason for his success as a pastor was because his people prayed for him. He's speaking of those boiler room prayer meetings 
that people would meet. I think it was on Monday night they'd gather to pray. And I think that was probably true. You know, a lot of people, a lot of pastors want to study uh, the, the, the sermons of Spurgeon and read his sermons. What is it? What does he do? How was he able to make things come alive? Well, I think the answer was, I, think, I do think the answer really boiled down to prayer. That's what made his ministry so effective. And he was an extremely gifted person, but I think a lot of that, a lot of what we would call giftedness really is the result of God working through prayer. And so Paul gives us a tremendous gift here in Philippians because he provides us with a model of how to pray for one another. And so if we care about the Lord's work in our church and through our church, we should want to know how we can pray better. And that's why I wanted to spend this, this time this evening right before, as, the, as the year transitions, just to give us, again, a biblical perspective on how we should be praying as a church. And parents, this is actually a great model as well to know how you can pray for your kids. And you pray the very same things. And likewise, kids, you want to know how to pray for your parents. This is a great illustration for how you can pray for your parents. So um, Paul addresses really six things in this prayer. Six things that we should be praying for. That we would abound in love, pursue knowledge, be discerning, that we'd have nothing to be ashamed of, that we'd be filled with the Spirit, and that God would be glorified. All right, so let's, let's begin by looking at that first one in verse 9, where Paul says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. And we would uh, abound in love is his prayer. And as you know, the word for love here is agape, which speaks to covenant faithfulness. right? Sacrificial devotion that demonstrates itself in action. So it's not just the affections, strength of affections, but it's a commitment of the will, right? And, it, and love like this is brought about by God's indwelling of us, the Holy Spirit's work in our heart when we're born again. First John 4, 7 through 8, he writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And John's point, quite simply, is, If you're of God, you should love. And because God is love, he causes children to love. And so Paul's praying that love would abound in them. This is why love is a a fruit of the Spirit. And as a fruit, it means it's it's observable. It should be evident. Like you see a tree, you know a tree by its fruit. Now you don't look inside the tree, you don't have to dissect the tree to figure out what kind of tree it is. Well, you know that you know an apple tree because you see apples on it. In fact, I was just just this was at my parents' house just this weekend, and I looking out the window and there was a tree and it had like ten apples on it. It's the dead of winter, but these apples never fell. But I could tell it was an apple tree, not by looking at the bark, but just by seeing apples on it. So love is something that should be seen. It should be demonstrated in a person's actions. A lot of people might feel strong affections, but if they if, they, if their actions don't line up with God's character, it's not really biblical love. It's not agape love. So agape love loves even when it doesn't feel love. And the Philippians had already demonstrated their love for Paul. In fact, um, Paul's 
in, in his introduction, even in his conclusion, he talks about his appreciation for their care for him in sending Epaphroditus, and along with some financial support. And uh, their kindness, he mentions, when he previously served them in Philippi. And so Paul isn't assuming that they're deficient in their love when he prays that their love may abound more and more. But he recognizes that any Christian can always grow in their love. (laughs) We are never going to be maxed out in our love. Like we might feel it. I have strong affections and we think my affection can't get stronger. But again, love is more than just affection. It entails affection, but it's, it's living out when that affection is there. Living out what is best for another person. And specifically his prayer is that their love might abound more and more. In fact, that word abound, look at that. It means to have significant growth. Very great, excessive, surpassing, overflowing. It's, like a, it's, it's, uh, it's Again, it's like when something overflows, you can't get any more in. That's what he says. And that's the way love is. Right? The reason we love is because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. And as Christians, we just want to keep pouring it out. And when we, are, when we know how much God loves us, nothing holds us back from, from making sacrifices. We, we're free to make sacrifices. In fact, we're compelled to. The love of Christ compels us to do these great things that just shock people. I, I, I think of a marriage. The reason a couple gets married is because they love each other. That's pretty self-explanatory. But as they live together and serve together and wrestle and sacrifice together, their love should increase. Not that marriages won't go through difficulties, right? They will. But they're committed to persevering through the difficulty in order to truly love. So again, this love here, it assumes that there's going to be growth. There's going to be progress in the Christian life and the longer a person is a believer the more they should love the greater lovers they should be and it's worth asking the question even as we transition to a new year are you a more fervent lover a more committed a more faithful lover than you were last year are you growing in your love and again love it entails the thinking it entails the affections it tells action. And the more we grow in love, it will increase along with knowledge, discernment, holiness, spiritual fruit, and God will be glorified as Paul prays here. But Paul also prays that their love will be accompanied by knowledge. He says, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So Paul knows that prayer, that love doesn't just isn't produced in a vacuum. It, 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 love is insufficient in and of itself for the Christian life. It, it must be accompanied by, accompanied by knowledge. And the Greek word that he uses here for knowledge is epignosko. Now, the Greek word for knowledge is just gnosis. So epignosis is, uh, has a, an ad- I don't know what, they're, what they call it, a prefix onto the word. It, 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 epignosis means it's, it's real knowledge or advanced knowledge. A knowledge of truth rather than just information. So the knowledge he's speaking here is the knowledge of God. 
knowing the Bible, knowing theology, the, 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 the real truth, not just information. So Christians should never assume that they've arrived at their knowledge of God. There's always more and more to learn. In fact, we will be increasing in our knowledge of God even after we receive our resurrected bodies. In fact, we'll be increasing in our knowledge of God unto eternity because he's unfathomable. He's God. There's always going to be more for us to learn and understand and to grasp and to love and to treasure. And and there's a reason that most seminary programs take three to four years full time for students to complete. For a master's degree program, master's in divinity. But most master's programs in almost every other field are just one year. Well, why the difference? Because there's so much to know. In fact, many who get master's degree go on to get PhDs or other doctorates because there's so much to know. Well, some Christians think, well, you know, all I need to know is the Bible. I just have to read the Bible. And that's true in and of itself because the Bible is sufficient. But there's a but there's a reason more has been written on the Bible, I think, than any other subject in history. And a person could spend their whole lifetime. In fact, it would take multiple lifetimes to read everything that has been written on the Bible. And let's just assume everything that's been accurately written about the Bible, because there's a lot of junk about the Bible, too. It isn't inaccurate. But you could read everything that's accurate, everything that's true, and you could, it would take lifetimes. And then you throw sermons on top of that. So the reality is there's so much for us to know, it takes a long time for us to study. Because of the nature of Scripture. It's so deep, it's so applicable, and it's also challenging to understand. And so there's no reason for us to be more knowledgeable about some kind of entertainment than Scripture. There's a lot of people that are, I mean, it's understandable if a person's more knowledgeable about their work, what they do for a living, than than maybe scripture because their time is consumed with it. That's where their experience is. That's where their training is. But for a person to be more of an expert in their television show or their favorite book series or their favorite sports team, to be more knowledgeable about those things uh, than scripture is shameful for a Christian. It doesn't mean that those things are wrong. But there's no reason we should be more knowledgeable than that, than the thing that really matters, the thing that really gives us life. Our knowledge of these things should not exceed our knowledge of the Bible. And so a Christian should continue to grow in knowledge and hunger to know God. Paul recognizes this. That's why he's praying. He's not just telling the Philippians, read more of the Bible. He's praying that they would. They'd grow in understanding as they read and hear it preached. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. You guys know this passage. Yahweh says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am Yahweh who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares Yahweh. Right? That's what we should boast in. That we know God and know Him rightly. That He's just, that He's righteous. His steadfast love. That's what we should be boasting in. Not how many stats we have memorized. 
Philippians 3, a couple chapters later, Paul writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. He counts everything as rubbish in comparison to what? Just knowing Christ. In other words, knowing Christ means more to him than anything else. All of it. Everything else is trash compared to knowing what, he, what Scripture has revealed to him. And he says in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. In other words, Paul's saying, if you know God, it's not difficult at all to count everything else as trash. When you think about the things that you love the most right now. If you knew God like Paul knew God, it would not be hard at all for you to drop him in a second. And if we don't know God like that, we have to. We're just quenching ourselves. We're holding ourselves back from true satisfaction. I mean, really, that was the essence of my Christmas Eve message. Is there's a lot of good things to enjoy, and God wants us to enjoy these things. He gives us all things so that we might enjoy them. He's a loving, generous, gracious Father. He blesses us so that we might delight in these blessings, but not He doesn't want the blessings to quench us or to distract us from the source of all joy, the source of all love. And so what we need to do is we need to abound in knowledge of Him. So if we know God as he is, as he's revealed himself in Scripture, it really is the most comforting, secure thing anybody could possess. I mean, that's why we can admire so many missionaries like John Elliott, who ministered to the Algonquin Indians, or John Payton, who ministered to the cannibals, or St. Patrick. Why were they able to do what they did day in and day out in the midst of great suffering? Well... They knew their God. That's it. They just knew what the Bible said about their God. It, it, it's no mystery. They didn't need to go through Navy SEAL training. They just knew their God. Thirdly, Paul prays that they would be discerning. He prays that they would have all discernment. That word all discernment is Aisthanomai, from which we get the word aesthetics. It means to have the capacity to perceive clearly. Like you see through something. You, you, you understand something. The real nature of something. And note too that this discernment is connected to knowledge. It's not merely a hunch or an impulse. It, so discerning comes through training the mind. You will not be discerning unless you have true knowledge. Namely in Scripture. Right? Hebrews 5. You guys know this passage. I'll just read it from you, to you from my notes. Hebrews 5, verse, 11, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, 
For those who have the powers, notice this, those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Like discernment comes through training. Constant practice. Where do, where do we get constant practice to discern? Constant devotion to the Word of God. So it doesn't come in a vacuum. We need as much of Scripture as we can get so that we could have discernment. But again, Paul doesn't just say, grow in discernment, grow in your time in the Word. He prays for it. He prays that even as they're getting this time in the Word, as they're going to church, that that God would give them discernment, that we would make use of their study of Scripture. And he he explains what this discernment looks like in the next verse. Verse 10, So that you may approve what is excellent. A well-known word in the Greek, dokimazo, that word approve, it means to regard something as genuine or worthy on the basis of testing. Like, you know the real thing because it's been tested. It's proven. It's dokimazo. Uh, the word is used in Romans 12 too. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern. You can tell the tr- what is the will of God. You just know it. You're not confused. You're not foggy about what God would want you to do. Because your mind has been immersed in the word of God. The word of God just floods into your mind. It, and that's, that's maybe the Holy Spirit helping you with that. But it's, it's also you've trained yourself to have that discernment. So we don't need to have some existential experience to discern the will of God. We don't need prophets, so to speak, to tell us God's will. We have the Scripture. We we discern what is God's will through reading the Word of God. That's what renews our mind. And that word, excellent. You may approve what is excellent. Diaphoreo. The word doesn't convey so much precision and flawlessness, and I say that because that's often what we think of when you hear the word excellent, right? We got to do everything with excellence. The, the Raiders, you know, vision statement was a commitment to excellence growing up. So I plastered everywhere and I thought, what does that mean? <laughs> it didn't, didn't register to me as a, as a 10-year-old kid. Uh, but go Raiders. Uh, but the word doesn't mean precision or flawlessness. It, it, it speaks to that which is Truly worthwhile and valuable. I don't think that's what the Raiders had in mind. <laughs> I think they had more of the English definition of excellence. But this, this Greek word means to be able to discern what is truly worthwhile and valuable. And so it's like an, a jeweler who can tell the difference between a really high quality diamond and a cubic zirconia. I can't tell the difference. Even if somebody told me, it's, they look the same. But a jeweler knows. We think of those experts uh, in like the Antique Roadshow. I don't know if you guys ever watched that. Very fascinating show. They can tell the difference between junk in pretty short time and something that's super valuable. Because their mind, is, they've been trained to discern what is really valuable. And so the discernment that Christians are to cultivate is this ability to see what's true. What really is the will of God? Right? The world says, this is valuable. This is what you should pursue. This is what's going to make you uh, satisfied. This is what's going to 
demonstrate significance and worth. And the Bible says, "Uh -uh." uh-uh. And a Christian needs to be able to discern the difference. And you could see just so much of the churches in our culture have just tried to blend the two. And it doesn't work. The world and the scripture are in, are in, have vastly different worldviews. And Paul knew that. That's why he's praying what he does. Because the, the, his opponents are actually trying to lead the Philippians astray to really embrace various forms of worldliness. That's why he's making the arguments that he's making in Philippians. I don't, I've set aside all those things. And now I just want to know Christ. So be aware of these teachers that would lead you in a different direction. Again, this is why Paul exhorts in Philippians 1.27. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, in order for it to be worthy, you need to discern what is truly worthy. Or else you wouldn't have an idea. So the reason Paul prays for their sermon is he doesn't want him to fall victim to the errors of his opponents. And it, there's a twinge of fear here, notice, in Paul's prayer. You can, you can hear the concern. He fears that, it, that God's children might be led astray, just as he told the Corinthians when he said, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And, and if you sense the sharpness in Paul's tone as he writes his letter to the Galatians or to the Corinthians... Just consider how a mother reacts when her to- she sees her toddler running through a parking lot. Right? She yells, stop! Maybe with a sense of anger almost. It might sound that way. But is she angry at her child? She's concerned for its life. Now you might hear that and be like, man, there's another mom that just has lacks self-control. If you didn't know, if you just heard the voice but you didn't see the situation. But exact opposite of the case. If she didn't love her child, she would not say anything. Right? The, the tone, the sharpness shows that she really does care for the danger that her child is in. And that's what Paul's trying to convey to the Philippians. You're, in, you're at risk. He genuinely loved these churches, which is why he rebuked them and pleaded and prayed for their discernment. Right? In, in failing to discern truth and error, that's why so many churches, so many Christians have made shipwreck of their faith. And in, it doesn't take long. I mean, churches can tank within a generation. Even seminaries where experts in Scripture teach their day in and day out. Uh, there's many seminaries who within one generation have gone from conservative to liberal. How does that happen? Well, instead of being... Instructed by Scripture, they begin to be instructed by the world, what the world values. It's, it's really that simple. So this is a real threat. And it's a threat we need to be aware of. Just because we have a fervency and a love for doctrine right now doesn't mean that 10 years, that's going to stay. Like, there's no promise of that. I mean, we can all think of churches in this region that were once stalwart, that we would 
encourage people to move to this area to attend. And now we, we plead with people to leave. Richard Van Vermbrand, in his book, Torture for Christ, he, he described how pastors failed in their discernment in regard to communism. Let's read from it. He says, once the communists came to power, they skillfully used the means of seduction toward the church. He says, the language of love and the language of seduction are the same. The one who wishes a girl for a wife and the one who wishes her only for a night both say the words, I love you. Just as Jesus told us to discern between the language of seduction and the language of love and to know the wolves clad in sheepskin from the real sheep. Unfortunately, when the communists came to power, thousands of priests, pastors, and ministers did not know how to discern between the two voices. And their failure to discern the difference led to massive apostasy and, and to embrace one of the most oppressive governments in the modern world. And I'm sure that these men thought they were doing the right thing. Like, they didn't think they were supporting the bad guys. They thought they were doing what's in the, what Christ would want them to do. Well, why would they think that when communism, by definition, is atheist? It's because they lack discernment. They couldn't tell the difference between what the communist leaders were teaching and what the Bible taught. Because they weren't thinking biblically. They were thinking according to just whatever their tradition is or how to maintain their structure or their power, how to keep the church doors open. And likewise, the reason so many American Christians readily embrace the culture's nonsense today is because I think they think they are discerning. But again, their discernment isn't cued to Scripture, it's cued to the world. And so how can a person know? I mean, this is an honest question for us. How can we know if our discernment is being driven by Scripture, if it's being driven by the world? I mean, how do we know if we're off base? Well, the only way we'd know is if we're actively educating ourselves in the Word of God. And we can't wait till it's too late to grow in discernment. It was too late for the, after the communists came to power. Right? Just as we can't, we want our kids to look both ways before they cross the street, not after they get halfway through and the car is inches away from them, honking its horn. Like, that's too late for them to look both ways. Right? Likewise, we need to learn to discern before we get ourselves into trouble, before we begin to ask, how did we get here? And that's what Paul's concerned about. He wants the Philippians to, to grow in their understanding of the word so that they would have discernment. And that discernment would lead them to have nothing to be ashamed of. That's what he says next. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless till the day of Christ. And look at those two words there, pure and blameless. Right? He considers both the inner as well as the outer man. You're pure in your heart and you're blameless in the eyes of others. There's nothing they can condemn you for. And the, the word purity speaks to uh, morality and motives. That, that there's no hidden agenda. There's no flaw. There's no faking it. You're not interested just in giving people an appearance of godliness. Right? Paul uses this word in 2 Corinthians 2.17. When he says, for we're not like so many peddlers of God's word 
but as men of sincerity. There's the word. As commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Right. He's not concerned about what other people are evaluating. He speaks it from the heart because he knows God evaluates the heart. And I love this. Second Corinthians 4, 2. He says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He knows he has nothing to be ashamed of. His conscience doesn't condemn him at all because he's sincere, because he, he's not looking for applause. He's looking to be faithful. His heart is in the right place. And this is in great contrast to his opponents, because in Philippians 1.17, Paul says the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So already the early church had people who were preaching. These were preachers he's speaking of with uh, despicable motives. So we just want to be a people who have nothing to hide. The kind, we would live the kind of lives that invites investigation. Right? That's not like, well, you can't talk about that stuff because that's just private information. No, we should, we should want people to see us at any point in time. Because if there's something we're ashamed of before people, we should be doubly, triply, <laughs> exponentially more ashamed of because we're doing it in the sight of God. Right? That's what the fear of God is. We have a greater fear of God than of men. And the way we get there is by exercising discernment, determining the right choices and not, not getting duped by worldly thinking or ever thinking, well, I can take a break from my morality, from my self-discipline, from my self-control. I'll just take a break because, you know, that's just what humans do. And we can never think that way. We need to be pure, but also blameless, doing nothing that might hurt another or cause them to stumble. Right? So this, this, is, this is the effect that we might have on another person if they see the way that we're living, the way that we're speaking. That when we, we use the phrase being a stumbling block, that we would never do anything that would lead somebody down a wrong path. All right, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.32, Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone. Now, he's not talking about being a people pleaser, but he's, but he's saying, I'm not trying to, I, I go out of my way to keep from offending somebody unnecessarily. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. He says in Romans 14.21, it's, it's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Don't do anything that might lead another person astray. If you, and, and sometimes we're going to do that, but we need to learn from our mistakes. Right? We shouldn't be making the same, we shouldn't be causing people to stumble again and again and again and again in the same way. The first time should be enough. And what Paul's praying this for is because he wants them to have nothing inwardly or outwardly that they would be ashamed of on Judgment Day. And that's, that's, we see that in the text. For the day of Christ. The day of Christ is referring to the day when Christ would reign. We've been looking at that in the book of Revelation. When every person would stand before the judgment of Christ. And he's not speaking about 
the judgment of unbelievers here. He's speaking about the judgment of believers because he's writing to believers. And this was a massive concern in many of his letters. Right? It, was, it was part of the gospel that he preached to Felix in the book of Acts. It says in Acts 24, verse 24, After some days Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus, and as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. So Paul didn't just preach that there's forgiveness found in Christ, though he certainly did. But he preached why we need that forgiveness. It's because there's a coming judgment. And even what compels him now to live his life, though he's already saved, though he's already forgiven, though he knows there's no condemnation. Why does Paul continue to live as a person that if Christ hadn't risen from the dead, he would, he would have the most pitiable life ever? Why does he do that? Because he fears the judgment of Christ. He says in, uh, to the Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. All right. Again, Paul's not concerned that, that about the Philippians going to hell. He wants them each to hear from Christ when they stand before him on judgment day. He wants them each to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, a lot of Christians think every Christian is going to hear that. That's not true. You can tell that in the context of that message. The point is, there are people who won't hear that because they weren't faithful. You're only going to be faithful if you're faithful with what God's given you. He's not going to tell you you've been faithful if you haven't been. Like Paul feared his own judgment. And, he, and because he can't just reach out and walk next to every single Christian, he prays that they would be discerning and be pure and be blameless. So when that judgment day happens, he will have done everything he could for them to receive a commendation and not a condemnation from Christ. Because they weren't faithful. He doesn't want any of his flock to stand there ashamed and realize so much of their ministry was just wood, hay, and stubble. And they had squandered so much of what God had given them. He wants them to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Right, that's the fifth thing. He prays that they would be filled with fruit. And that word righteousness, it's the same word translated justification in the book of Romans. Diakosune. fruit of righteousness is really the fruit of being made righteousness. It's the, it's the evidence of salvation. It's, it's the fruit of having the Holy Spirit in you, right? The fruit of the Spirit is the evidence that the Holy Spirit is in you. And so what Paul's praying is that it would be un- abundantly obvious that the Philippians love Christ above everything else. And it's through, through such a life manifesting this kind of fruit that God's going to be glorified. Right? Jesus said... John 15, right? My, my Father is glorified in this, that you produce much fruit. Well, do you remember in the context, too, what produces that fruit? What's that? Well, pruning will do it, but even more, the bigger context, by abiding. Yeah, abide in me and I in you and you will bear much fruit. But then he 
He makes sure it gets better by the pruning, right? Which is speaking of suffering, right? But it comes through God's work in us. So how do we abide? We abide through prayer and meditating on the Word of God and serving one another. And that's what brings glory to God. By this, my Father is glorified. And we talk about when you do everything for the glory of God, soli deo gloria. Like that can't just be a phrase. If we really are doing that, it means we're committed to the things that bring that about. Which means the means of grace that produce real fruit, that's what glorifies God. Not just singing, not just telling the truth, but living it out according to God's word. Right? And that's the sixth thing, right? The glory of God. He prays that God would be glorified in them. Right? This, and this text shows us what the God-glorifying life looked like. Spiritual fruit. Having nothing to be ashamed of. Being able to discern God's will and then pursuing it. Right? And abounding in love for God and others. As I mentioned that such fruit can only be produced through Jesus. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Right? There, this is something we can't produce on our own. Like we, can do the, we can pursue the means of grace, but God's still got to do this as we abide in him. He produces the fruit. And you see, this is exactly why Paul is praying. Paul knows he can't produce the fruit in the Philippians' life. So what can he do? He can teach them the word and he can pray for them. And it's the same thing as parents. Right? We can't produce the spiritual fruit in our kids' life. We can't make them godly. But what can we do? We can teach them in the fear, the fear and admonition of the Lord and we can pray for them. And it works that's why Paul's doing it. Right? And we can be examples to them, of course, as well. And so this is how Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, prayed for the Philippians. How he would, I think, pray for us if he were here. And it's how I pray for you guys. I think it's how we can pray for one another. And it's just a great model of, of what we can be praying for as a church. So let's... Let's, let's apply that. I'll close in prayer and then we'll, we'll pray some more. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters who are here. Uh, evidence of your work in their life and their desire to see you glorified. But God, we want more than just desire. We want to really see you glorified in this church. That, 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 that spiritual fruit would be so abundantly obvious in, in the members that attend. And so we pray that, that you would cause them to abound in love, in all knowledge and all discernment, Lord, so that they'd be pure and blameless as they face the day of judgment. And we pray all these things in Christ's name.